Open your Bibles with me this morning, please, to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter number 2. As most of you know, this is the events recorded in regards to the day of Pentecost and Peter's message to the people. We're not going to read the entirety of the message, but beginning in verse 29. Acts 2 and verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and that his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would not, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seen this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear, for David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. It might not be apparent here in these few verses that I've read, but if you went back to verse 14 where, where Peter begins his message there, it would become obvious that, that Peter is giving them a bit of history. It's history that they're very familiar with, of course, but to make his point, he's looking back into history. I can't hardly think of that word without thinking about how much I hated history when I was a kid growing up. Of course, I hated school, so that included everything except P.E., but um, uh, history especially just seemed to be the most boring thing imaginable. I didn't, you know, all, all I cared about was, you know, baseball and hunting and fishing, and that was about it. Uh, but have you ever really wondered what history is all about? What was God's purpose in the creation? Now, I know that we can just quote the verse that tells us that God created all things for His glory. And that's true. That's what it all amounts to. But we, we need to think about what it is that God is working to accomplish and since the message this morning has to do with the Lordship of Christ, I want to just go back in history as far as we can. Now, you might be thinking, well, if we're going to do that, it takes us back to the Garden of Eden. But actually, it takes us even further back than that into the heavenlies where the Bible records for us in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and it tells us about the fall of Lucifer. If you read that story, it becomes very apparent that there was a struggle going on for control. 
Lucifer wanted to take God's place. He wanted to be in control. He wanted to run the show. And whenever you come to Genesis chapter 3, where we see recorded for us the fall of man, again you see this matter of control as the serpent beguiles Eve and there's this struggle going on and the devil says, you know, yea, hath God said? Are you really sure that's what God said? Are you really sure that God's not holding out on you, that there might be something better? And so he he's getting her to actually rebel against God, taking control of what she's going to do with her life rather than giving the Lord the control and doing as the Lord had commanded. Now, this struggle for control goes on down throughout all of the centuries. And we see it recorded throughout all of the Word of God. It's in the very beginning, as I just said, until you finally, you get over to Revelation, especially in chapter 20, and we get over to Revelation, and there we see Jesus reigning as Lord over all. That's what history is all about. It is His story. And bit by bit, From age to age, God has been working to carry out His eternal purpose, is the way the Apostle Paul put it. He's working to carry out His eternal purpose, which has to do with Christ being exalted to the throne and ruling over heaven and earth. So the issue this morning is for each one of us, for every individual has to do with who will control your life. Who will control your life? I don't have any reservations whenever I say that I can't, I can't think of any message more important than this issue concerning the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because when this issue is settled, all of the other issues are settled. Unless Jesus is Lord of all, He isn't Lord at all. And because He's Lord over all, we ought to live in submission to His authority. History teaches us clearly that we make a grave mistake if we don't. Now, notice verse number 36, the text for the message this morning, Therefore, based on everything that He has said up to this point, And he takes us back to where David, serving as a prophet and receiving revelations from the Lord about our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that there be no doubt about it, that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye crucified, notice, both Lord and Christ. The word Lord is used over 7,000 times in the Bible. It's used to describe the authority of a father in some places. It's used to describe a master over his servants. It's used to describe a military commander over his soldiers. It's used to describe a king over his subjects. And it became a title for whatever God it was that the people worshipped. In other words, it spoke about sovereign authority. Do you realize there's no record in the Bible of the disciples ever 
referring to Jesus by his earthly name while he was here as they conversed with him. They never called him by his earthly name. The most common title for him was what? Lord. They called him Lord. And the emphasis always on his lordship. That's the way it is throughout the New Testament. The word Savior. Isn't that a wonderful word? Savior. He is our Savior. That word appears only 24 times in the New Testament. Now that's enough to get anybody excited to think about Him being your Savior. The word Lord is used in reference to Him 433 times just in the New Testament. So His Lordship, without a doubt, is the theme of this book. History is His story. And I want you to think this morning about the Lordship of Christ. First of all, we see that His Lordship is proclaimed. I just made that statement 433 times in the New Testament. David called Him Lord before His birth. We see that in verse number 25. You'll remember that John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, he said he was preparing the way of the Lord. Thomas cried out, My Lord and my God. Saul of Tarsus said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Peter said he is both Lord and Christ. So it is proclaimed over and over and over again that Jesus is Lord. That ought to mean something to us. That ought to mean everything to us. The fact that He is the centerpiece of the Word of God. And He is the Lord of our life. It's proclaimed, but it's also proven. You know, it's one thing to make a proclamation. It's another thing to prove what you claim. And here we find the Bible telling us that He, notice, He hath made Him both Lord and Christ. You know, we so many times talk about that we have made Jesus the Lord of our life. You don't make Him anything. He's already Lord. It's a matter of us accepting Him as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the Bible proclaims the fact that He is Lord, but it also proves it. It proves it in at least three ways. Number one, by the promise of His Word. Over in John chapter number 13 and verse 13, Jesus said, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. Now remember, He cannot lie. Amen? And His Word over and over and over again Gives us the proof, the evidence. Now, that ought to be all that we need, right? I mean, like the old saying, if God said it, that settles it. That ought to settle it for all of us. He is Lord, you know, whether your best friend acknowledges that or not, whether it makes sense to you or not, whether you want to accept it or not. The fact remains that He is Lord. We see the evidence of it given by the proof of His Word. But secondly, we see it by the perfection of His ways. Hebrews 4.15 says that He was in all points tempted like as we are, 
Let that sink in for just a moment. Sometimes we think about that there is this great disconnect between between us and Christ. You know, we think, well, you know, he's Christ. He's the Son of God in the flesh. I mean, how can he identify with us? He was tempted in all points such as we are. And when we think about, you know, the three avenues of temptation, we won't go into that, but when we think about those three avenues, the same ones that John spoke about, those same three avenues that we see in the fall of man in Genesis chapter number 3, those same three avenues where we read about the temptation of Christ. You see, the only way for Christ to become our great high priest to where he could identify with the way that we feel was for him to take upon himself the form of a man and to allow himself to be tempted such as we are, and yet we read these words, yet without sin. That could never be said of anybody else. He is the only one that can say that he has endured every possible temptation in every avenue and yet without sin. We see in the perfection of his ways the proof that he is Lord. How much more proof should we need? The proof of his word, the perfection of his ways, and thirdly, with the power of his works. Look in verse 22. Here in Peter's message, and notice what he says. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, that's the place out of which they said nothing good can come from there. Jesus of Nazareth. Notice, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. John chapter 5 and verse 36 says, But I have greater witness. This is the Lord speaking now. I have a greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do. And he says, notice, they bear witness of me. The Father hath sent me. He, he appealed to his works again in chapter number 14 where he says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. And you go on to John chapter number 20 where it speaks about all of the works that he did and says, And these things were written, why? That you might believe. They were written, they were given, these signs, these wonders are, are evidence that you might believe. And then you go to chapter 21 of John and it tells us, and all of the other things that he did, he said, if they were recorded, the world couldn't contain, everything could be written about him. I, we, we, we haven't touched the hem of the garment. When we think about all of his miracles, when we think about how he overcame disease, for example, we think about how that he overcame disaster and stilled the storm. We think about how that he met the various demands and defeated the demons and even conquered death. And we look at all of those things, all of his works, the things that he accomplished. And it gives us evidence that he is indeed the Lord over all. Amen. Amen. I'm glad he's running the show. 
Amen. The same one that was raised up from the dead has power, all power in heaven and in earth. He is Lord. And we have all of this evidence of it. To deny the Lordship of Christ is to totally deny history altogether and the evidence that has been accumulated for us and recorded for us in the Word of God. Not only that, the Lordship of Christ is preeminent. Turn over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 for just a moment. Philippians chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 9. Let's back up to verse 7. Speaking of Christ, it says, But he made of himself no reputation, but took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, That's why I say His Lordship is preeminent. It is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, the things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His Lordship is preeminent. We think about all of those men that down through the ages that have ruled over the nations and those who, at least by, by their own theory, had conquered and was controlling the world. And yet, all of those men, all of those mighty kingdoms that have existed, all of those existed under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why John said that he is the, he is the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. Acts 10, 36 says he is the Lord of all. Revelation chapter 5. So many people wonder what they're going to do when they get to heaven. Talk about skipping down Hallelujah Avenue, kicking up gold dust under our feet and talking about all of the people we want to see and all of the things that we want to do. Boy, we get the real picture in Revelation 5 where all of a sudden the heavenly choir is assembled. All of the saints down through all of the ages and the angelic choir all about us as we begin to sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and honor and glory and so forth. And we sing that over and over and over. Somebody says, well, well, I don't like that repetitious singing. I don't like keep singing. Oh, well, you're going to be bored in heaven. Because when we get to heaven, it's going to be over and over again. Worthy is the Lamb. That's going to be the very theme of all of heaven. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Remember, remember, this is the humiliation of what God has been working to accomplish throughout the ages. And that is to finally, at long last, bring everything under the control of of His dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His Lordship is preeminent. He is the Lord of all. Whether people acknowledge Him or not, He is Lord of all. But we need to think about, in making this personal, we need to think about of how His Lordship is professed. The profession of His Lordship, naturally, 
It begins with what? Personally, in the matter of salvation. Look in Romans chapter number 10. And most of you could quote these verses without a doubt. Romans chapter number 10. Begin reading in verse number 9. If you've ever taken a course in winning souls to Christ, why, these would be some of the first verses that you would memorize. He says, verse 9, But if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, notice, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, for there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord, the same Lord over all, is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, the Lordship of Christ isn't optional. In other words, if we are to accept Him as our Savior, we must acknowledge Him as our Lord. Some years ago, there was a big debate raging among preachers all across the nation, in fact. All of the popular radio preachers got caught up in it, and it was those that, that had a difference of opinion concerning what people call Lordship Salvation. You know, there were those that said, as I've just stated, that unless He is your Lord of all, He's not Lord at all in your life. You can't receive Christ just as your Savior and not your Lord. It's impossible. Amen. There were others that come along, and they I'm talking about even some Baptists that objected to that, said, oh no, He can be your Savior. That doesn't mean that He has to, he has to be in, in the Lord of your life in every area. Well, in the first place, nobody ever said that. Nobody ever said we lived in perfect submission to Him. It was a stupid argument to begin with. But the fact of the matter is, for Him to be your Savior, you have to acknowledge Him as the Lord of your life. None of us live the life that God intends in a perfect fashion. We all fail, but anybody... Anybody that thinks they're saved, that claims to be saved, that hopes to be saved, that does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He ought to be in absolute, total control of my life, and I'm out of the will of God if I'm not living in submission to Him. If that's not your attitude, you've never been saved. You have to acknowledge Him as the rightful Lord of your life. That's what, what he says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's in Acts chapter 16. You remember that, that Paul and Silas in prison and at midnight they're singing and boy, that got God's attention and God shook up the place and the first jailhouse rock. All of a sudden the jailhouse is rocking and the doors are open and they're uh, you know, their chains fall off and the jailer runs in there scared to death thinking they've escaped and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I, I just wonder, I, I, you know, all of those people with different ideas as to what it takes to become a Christian. You know, had that jailer asked some folks today, what must I do to be saved? There would be some say, well, you've got to be baptized for sure. 
If you don't get baptized, you couldn't be saved. Or you've got to be a part of our denomination. Someone shared with me just last week this sad, sad story of, uh, uh, of someone that was in the hospital and somebody we've been praying for, by the way. And uh, it was Carol Wilson sharing this with me. And, uh, and so a, a Catholic priest came in and uh, the husband was there in the room and the husband inquired, would you pray for my wife? And he said, is she a Catholic? He said, no, she's not, not a Catholic. She's dying, you know, and would you pray for her? He said, oh, I can't pray for her unless she's a Catholic. If that wasn't bad enough, it wasn't but a, a, a little while longer. It just so happened there was another Catholic uh, priest that came in. And the same thing happened. He said, would you pray for my wife? And again, he said, no, I can't pray for her if she's not Catholic. Why in the world would somebody be stupid enough to stay in a religion like that? Amen. The jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And some folks would have said, well, you've got to be baptized. And some folks would have said, well, you've got to be a part of our denomination. And some other folks would have said, well, you've got to be a good neighbor, that's for sure. There would have been all kinds of ideas. And if ever there was anything else that we had to do to be saved, this was the ideal time for Paul to straighten it out. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe, notice the three words he uses. It's important. Believe on the Lord. That means he's our master. Believe on the Lord Jesus. That means that as Jesus, he is the mediator. He is that one and only man that, that fills the gap between man and God. And then Christ. all of those so we profess his lordship personally in salvation but we profess his lordship publicly in baptism baptism doesn't save us but baptism is a an outward picture of the fact that we have received him it is our our way of making a public confession that we will walk in newness of life look in romans chapter number six for just a moment and here in Romans chapter number 6, and certain parts of this really gets deep down, as it were, in a lot of things that we won't go into. But he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, a lot of folks back then had that idea. Oh, well, if we're saved, you know, by grace, if it's not by works, if we're saved by just grace, uh, well, we can do whatever we want to do. In other words, we can be saved and just go right on sinning. And he's trying to get them to understand, no, it doesn't work that way. They're saying, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The most mixed up people on earth are religious people. And there's good evidence of it there. And Paul says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin... Living any longer therein, know ye not that so many of us that were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism in death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 
A lot of folks get baptized without ever realizing the commitment, the confession that they're making when they do. That is your public confession, your commitment that you're making to God that you're going to walk in newness of life. What does that mean? To walk in newness of life means to walk under the Lord's authority. To live in submission to His Lordship. That's what it's all about. And the means whereby you and I are able to communicate to other people that we have received Him as Lord and Savior is through baptism. It is an outward picture of what has happened inwardly. I wear this wedding band that identifies me with my wife. It's a public, a public picture of the fact that I'm married. Baptism is a public picture of the fact that you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior. So, His Lordship is professed personally in salvation, publicly in baptism, but practically in obedience. You'll remember that Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Good question, huh? You'll find a lot of people that would say, oh yeah, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And yet the manner of their life is entirely different than, than what He has prescribed in the Word of God. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? I think every Christian has a desire to see other people become Christians. Isn't that the way it worked with you? As soon as you got saved, what you started thinking about your loved ones that, that were not saved. Might have been your mom or your dad. Might have been your brother, your sister, your children or somebody. But all of a sudden, you had this burning desire in your heart to see them come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if we're ever going to be able to win others to Christ, it's essential that first of all, they be convinced that we are disciples of Christ. And unless we obey Him, we're never going to be able to win them. And when we talk about yielding to the Lordship of Christ, that means every area of our life. You know, it's real easy for us to isolate certain areas for our own use, our own pleasure. You know, we don't mind Him being the Lord of our life when it comes to what we do on Sunday. You know, we don't mind Him being the Lord of our life whenever it comes to do with certain aspects of our behavior. That's okay. But if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves trying to post a no trespassing sign in certain areas of our life and lock Him out of those rooms of our life, as it were, that we don't want Him in. Those that we've reserved for our own pleasure. But if He is the Lord of our life, He is to control every aspect of our life and and that's where the flesh throws a fit. It doesn't like that. It never will like that. And you're going to have to resist the flesh until the day that you die. It's, look, folks, it's not a matter of whether or not someone is going to control your life. 
We, we, we like to think of ourselves as being footloose and fancy free, you know, that we do whatever we want to do. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. It's my life. I'm going to live it the way I want. I'm not going to let anybody dictate to me how I'm going to live. Nobody's going to control me. There's never a moment of your life where someone or something is not controlling you. It's not a matter of whether someone's going to. It's a matter of who is going to control you. That raises the question this morning that each one needs to answer. And that is, who is controlling your life? Who is controlling your life? The only time I've ever quoted Bob Dylan, the singer, uh, in a sermon anyway, was in reference to a song he wrote many years ago called You Gotta Serve Somebody. He got it right in that song. I wish I had time to read the whole thing. It'd be amazed how much theology is in that song. But the chorus, and it comes down to the end, and here's what it says. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's exactly right. Remember, Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You see, there's no middle ground. We're either serving the Lord or we're not serving the Lord. You say, yeah, but I, I attend church every Sunday morning. You know, I, yeah, I, I don't come back Sunday night or Wednesday night, but I'm here Sunday morning and I even tithe most of the time and I do this and I do that. Are you really saying that you're living your life under the Lordship of Christ? In, indeed, in certain areas of your life, you submit to Him as Lord. But in those other areas, it's all about what? It's all about what you want to do, how you want to live, you see. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. And he said, he that is not with me is what? Against me. It's one of the two. There's no middle ground. You're either against him. Boy, why don't we stop and think about that and think about the condition of churches today and the problems that exist and we wonder, you know, we scratch our head and wonder why, why isn't there a great revival? Why, you know, why aren't the churches just filled to overflowing? Why, why, why isn't, why isn't, uh, the morals of our nation what it used to be? Well, it's real easy to figure out whenever you start thinking about the Lordship of Christ. And the number of people that's, you know, really, truly, honestly willing to say, He is the Lord of my life. And I take that into consideration in absolutely every decision I make, every place I go, everything I do. I make all of my decisions in light of the fact that Jesus is my Lord. I read about a woman, a young woman who was very troubled Trouble with the fact that she just couldn't figure out what to do when it come to resisting her desires, the things that she wanted in life and what have you, that many times that were in conflict with what the Word of God says. And every Christian knows what she was going through, right? Paul knew what it was. He talks about it in Romans chapter number 7, that, that battle between the Spirit and the flesh. So she goes to the preacher and 
lays it out before him and wants some advice. And the preacher quickly grabbed a piece of paper. He wrote two words on the piece of paper, handed it to her and told her, said, go sit down and I want you to just sit there and meditate on these two words for ten minutes. Think about those words, cross out one, and then return the paper to me. So the woman went over and she sat down. She started staring at the piece of paper. Two words. First word, no. The second word was Lord. So she sat there wondering which one she ought to cross out. And finally it began to dawn upon her that if she was saying no, she couldn't say Lord. And if she wanted to call Christ Lord... She couldn't say no. And that left the word Lord. She crossed out the word no. And it was just Lord. That settled the matter. To say no to the will of Christ is to declare yourself as Lord. That's exactly what you're doing. We create gods in our own image. We decide that we're going to take the place that He rightfully deserves, the place to which He has been appointed by the Father Himself. And that young woman began to realize, I've got to cross out that word, no. And He is the Lord of all. And that He has the final say in every decision that I make. You know, it might, might help you today to try that exercise just take a piece of paper and put those two words on it and sit there and look at it and ask yourself which one should I cross out and I'll bet you come to the same conclusion that you need to cross out the no Jesus Jesus is the king of kings and the lord of lords he is the lord over all The question is, are you willing to acknowledge Him as the Lord of your life? And it might be for some of you that would mean in order to do that, for you to be saved. And the Bible says, God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. If you're not saved, God's commanding you to be saved. And if you've been saved, in order for you to live under the Lordship of Christ, you need to get baptized. A lot of folks make a profession of faith and, you know, they just leave it there. I'll tell you, if I was here, if I got saved this morning, knowing what I know now, if I got saved this morning, I'd want to get baptized this morning, if at all possible. We used to do it that way. We didn't have a baptistry. We just headed out to the river. Somebody got saved on Sunday morning. Before we went to lunch, as soon as the service is over, we headed toward the river. We baptized them. That wouldn't go over very good today, but the people back then, they were happy to do that. They just got saved. They didn't care. If you've been saved and you've never followed the Lord in Scripture or baptism, you ought to do that. And if you're here and you've been saved and you've been baptized, you're a member of the church and everything, but, but you know deep down in the very depths of your heart that you've not been living in submission to the Lordship of Christ. And it might be this morning you just need to get on your knees before God and say, Lord, forgive me for trying to take your place 
and to run the show and do things my way. Help me, Heavenly Father, to just submit myself to your authority over me and to live for you in such a way that others can see it and they too might come to know Christ as their Savior while we stand together. Heavenly Father, how we thank you, dear Lord, this morning for our dear Savior who is so high and mighty and yet was willing to take upon himself the form, the fashion of a man to leave heaven in all of its glory to come down here and walk upon the dusty streets of Galilee, to walk among sinful men, to be mocked and abused and crucified, all for the sake of being able to save those that are lost, And I just pray this morning that each and every one of us might submit ourselves to His authority in our life. If someone's not saved, that they'd be saved this morning. And Lord, for those that are, that each and every one of us would dedicate ourselves to the purpose of living in submission to Your will for our life. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. While we sing. With her.